Hey there, this is Robbie Griswold at the Residential College. Thank you for listening to our episode two of the yet unnamed RC podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you John Wells, the current director of the Residential College, so that he can introduce himself to you and give you a little bit of background about his scholarship and passions and what he brings to the RC and its leadership. All right, John. So how about you introduce yourself for us, please? And also let us know about your scholarly background and what led you to the teaching that you're doing here at the University of Michigan and in the residential college. Uh, Sure. Thanks for having me. I am originally from North Carolina, uh, so I grew up in Durham, then uh, moved to Florida, uh, actually, in the uh, mid-70s. And uh, the reason for that was because uh, of uh, my father, who was an English professor, specialized in um, 19th century American literature, and he uh, managed to uh, get a job as an assistant professor at the University of South Florida. And uh, because my father was so interested in uh, 19th century American literature, uh, I was kind of steeped in a, in a strange way, I suppose, in uh, the culture, the ideas, the politics of uh, America in the 1800s. And therefore, you know, from an early age, I, I kind of had that built-in um, understanding of what that period was all about, why people thought it was interesting. And uh, as I uh, got through college, I was realizing that I was also interested in uh, the developments, particularly the political developments uh, of the 1830s, uh, 1840s, 1850s, and up to the Civil War. My father and I were very close growing up, and um, so that was probably the most impactful Uh, reason why I decided to pursue graduate study in 19th century American history. Great. And that's an excellent segue to our next question. Could you tell us about the research you did in your PhD and the scholarship that you've been doing since? Yeah, sure. Uh, Most of my work uh, for the last uh, 10, 15 years has been focused on the history of the American South, uh, particularly slavery, uh, African-American history, as well as the um, social structure, the class structure of the American South uh, before the Civil War. More recently, though, uh, I've been interested in um, what was going on at the same time, but uh, farther to the north in the free states, uh, in the upper Midwest and in the American uh, North. Northeast. And uh, I really had to do a lot of uh, reading to catch up and and really try to understand the nuances of the United States in the North and the Midwest before the Civil War to the same extent that I had studied uh, the American South. So for a number of years, I did a lot of uh, reading both in primary sources and in works by other historians. And it led me to uh, the two book projects I'm working on now. Uh, One is about uh, the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, uh, the kidnapping of free African Americans before the Civil War, and what that all had to do uh, with the coming of the Civil War. I was fortunate to give uh, a series of lectures last fall, so that would have been in uh, the fall of 2017, at um, Mercer University, a very kind of famous lecture series called the Lamar Lectures, and that's being turned uh, into a book right now, which should be out later this year with uh, University of Georgia Press. And then uh, the second book uh, I've been working on for a number of years now uh, actually zeroes in on New York City and uh, the kidnapping of African Americans from the streets of New York City. 
A lot of people think of New York City today, quite rightly, of course, as a sort of multicultural metropolis, uh, one of the leading progressive cities uh, in the United States and around the world. But a lot of uh, folks maybe don't realize that before the Civil War, New York was actually uh, very much um, in sympathy with the American South and with actually slavery. And it had a lot to do with the ties between uh, the two regions, between the South and New York City, uh, when it came to the cotton trade. Uh, New York City's uh, Wall Street financiers depended quite heavily on uh, cotton that was grown by Southern uh, African Americans. And so uh, Wall Street itself uh, grew up and developed and became uh, uh, financial capital in part because of its close ties with the South and with slavery. So that book uh, I'm writing now, and it's, it's painful because so many um, children, men, women of all ages, in fact, were uh, literally kidnapped, dragged off the streets of New York, taken before uh, sort of ad hoc uh, courts and uh, carried off into American slavery, particularly in the 1830s. So uh, while that's been very, very interesting, and it's certainly uh, not exactly a bright topic, it's been, it's been very troubling to see the plight uh, of African Americans in New York City uh, before the Civil War. I think many of us who are not historians, certainly those of us who are not historians who specifically focus on uh, slavery, you know, I have some inkling that um, certainly slavery was a horrific and uh, violent and very brutal regime uh, that operated uh, f- at first across the country um, when it was in the colonial stages, and then finally located primarily in the American South. Um, but I will tell you, uh, unless you really delve deeply into the primary sources, unless you're really reading the newspaper articles, unless you're uh, looking at the eyewitness accounts of African-American families who have, in fact, uh, lost their children to the hands of kidnappers or people who are uh, taken by police and, and never seen or heard from again, uh, you really can't grasp the depth of uh, the violence and the brutality that was inflicted on African Americans, um, not just in the American South, as bad as that was, but in places that we think, at least sort of superficially, uh, were supposed to be places of refuge. And by that, I mean places like New York City uh, or Philadelphia or Boston. Because New York in particular was such a pro-South uh, city, because its sympathies laid uh, so inherently with the southern cotton trade, it was especially among uh, cities in the Northeast and the Midwest, a place uh, that was a, a very precarious uh, place for African Americans to be. So, you know, violence against African Americans uh, through the legal system, uh, um, countenanced by politicians. Uh, all of that is so prevalent uh, long, long before the present time. And um, people forget their history, I suppose. Uh, Maybe historians themselves are not doing a good enough job sort of letting the public know. Um, But unless you study this period, you have no idea how bad it was for African Americans across the country um, before the Civil War. As I listen to you, John, I'm just taken aback by anger and disheartenment about the fact that what you've done is uh, brought to light so many pieces of our history, you know, Civil War era history especially, that are still so topical. 
and relate so strongly to these events and precipitating circumstances that have led to such important movements as the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm just taking that in. And um, I'm glad that there are historians like yourself that are out there uh, recalling our past and making sure that we don't forget it as we move forward. Thank you also for sharing about your early personal experiences, for instance, like with your father, that led to your scholastic background and that ultimately led to the work that you've been doing lately. I'm sure some of that will find its way into the two courses that you're teaching here in the fall, the first of which is an RC first-year writing seminar, the American Civil War, for first-year students in the residential college, and then the second over at the LSNA Department of Afro-American and African Studies, you're teaching a small seminar called called The African-American Experience, 1700 to 1945. So I imagine that the great work that you've been doing on the North will play a big role in that coursework. Let's pivot now, John, to your other role, which is the director of the residential college. I imagine that as an outsider coming in, the RC was quite a lot to take in. And so I'm curious to know what it was like when you first became an associate director and learned about the leadership that had come before you. And then as you trained to be the director, uh, what the legacy that was left behind by the previous directors and how much of that you got to be aware of before you took that role as director. Yes, thank you. Uh, I did have a chance to talk to Herb Eagle and Tom Weiskopf, Charlie Bright, and Angela, Angela Dillard in person about their experiences as uh, the director of the RC. So it, they were all really helpful in their own ways, obviously. Um, the RC was an institution that was welcoming, that was inclusive, that was dedicated to a sense of social justice and gender equality and and um, equality and sexual identity long before I came here. And I, I think that was obviously one of the things that came through when I interviewed uh, or had conversations with former directors. And that was something I very much wanted to uh, preserve. The other thing that came uh, clear to me when I was talking with former directors is the fact that the RC faculty uh, is, a, is a very kind of egalitarian, uh, very democratic uh, faculty. And let me say a little bit about what I mean. At a lot of universities uh, and even with within departments, uh, there are clear kind of status distinctions, hierarchical distinctions between those who are on the tenure track and those who are, on, are not on the tenure track. Uh, and it was clear to me, learning more about the RC through the eyes of the directors, uh, that that was not true of this institution, that in fact, uh, we had uh, lecturers, many of them uh, long-term lecturers, who had important leadership roles in the programs within uh, the RC, that in fact, when it came to faculty meetings and when it came to really just sort of interacting with somebody in the hallway, uh, that this was an institution that... Uh, really dissuaded people from seeing themselves uh, as somehow elevated above the rest um, and that everybody had an important voice and everybody uh, had a role to play in creating that sense of community uh, that was so important to the RC long before, again, I got here. So uh, it was all well in place before I became uh, a part of the RC, and it was just a matter of uh, it being important to me to continue uh, those important legacies. 
Yeah, sounds like big shoes to fill, eh? <laughs> tell us and tell our listeners some of the initiatives and strategic efforts that you've been leading or planning that will take the RC into its second 50 years, into its next next stages. Well, thank you. And we've definitely be, begun thinking about what the RC is going to look like uh, at least 10 or 20 years uh, from now, if not uh, another half century from today. So uh, when I became the uh, director of the RC, one of the things that I really wanted to uh, impart was a, a more geogra- geographically broad Um, sense of our curriculum. So what I mean by that is a lot of the courses uh, that the RC offered uh, through important and and wonderful teachers uh, tended to be focused on Western Europe uh, or the United States. And I wanted to uh, have a chance to give our students in the RC uh, more opportunity to learn about other cultures, other religions, other histories, and, and other art forms uh, around the world. So uh, one way that we're sort of seeing that through now is we're engaged in hiring a person who could uh, teach our students in our curriculum about uh, Islamic art, uh, is the history of Islam, uh, Islamic music and dance. And uh, we're actually really literally in the midst of that search right now. And we're hoping that person will join the faculty in the fall and offer our, our students a, a new perspective on North Africa and the Middle East. Another thing I wanted to uh, try to do uh, was to diversify the faculty and the student body. So this uh, is part of a a nationwide uh, effort to increase the diversity of faculty uh, across different departments. And the RC, I thought, could also benefit from uh, this movement that's undertaken uh, in a national context. So uh, we've really made an effort to hire more faculty of color, uh, make sure that we're offering our students as diverse as teaching experience as we possibly can. And then finally, uh, we worked hard to diversify uh, the racial makeup uh, of our student body. Uh, We've always had, to some degree, uh, a very committed uh, student body when it came to social justice and and gender and sexuality issues. And I wanted to make sure that we were also reaching out to students of color, students uh, from under-resourced high schools in cities like Detroit, And thanks to our uh, new RC admissions director, Logan Corey, uh, we have really made an effort to diversify the student body as well. So those were some of the things that I wanted to try to accomplish uh, when I became director. And and I'm happy to say we're making progress in all of those areas, but um, we're not satisfied and and we're always trying to move in the direction of broadening our curriculum and, and diversifying our faculty and students. How can someone listening to this podcast connect with you, John, if they want to follow up with things that you've mentioned or have ideas for the RC uh, along the vein of these initiatives that you've described? Uh, probably the best way is uh, via email. Uh, we are constantly checking our email here at the university. It's the main means by which we communicate uh, with each other and with folks outside the university. Uh, you can uh, go on the RC website and easily see my email address, but um, it is J-O-N-W-E-L-L-S at umich.edu. 
Well, thank you, John, for taking the time to speak with me today. I imagine that there are folks listening to this podcast who have enjoyed listening to learn more about you and about your leadership of the RC. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on this podcast episode. Thank you so much for having me. We are excited to tell our listeners that since the recording of this interview, we have extended an offer to Ms. Sasha Krasno, who will be joining the RC as a faculty in uh, Islamic art. And actually, this hire has made the University of Michigan the second university in North America, along with Harvard, to have two faculty that specialize in Islamic art and visual culture. So go RC for leading the way on that, and we're excited to join the likes of Harvard on this. Thank you for listening to the second episode of the RC Podcast. As you may know, we are still looking for the name of this podcast, and so if you'd like to submit a name or vote on one that has already been given, you can do so on our website. Just go to the Sights and Sounds link, and then click on the left where it says Introducing the RC Podcast. You'll see a Google form on that page where you can vote on the names that have been submitted, like the Green Lounge and the Halfway. Those are the two leaders so far. Or you can write in your own on the bottom of that form. If you'd like to make an online gift while you're still on our website, we would greatly appreciate that. You can go to lsa.umich.edu backslash rc, and at the top right, click on the link that says Give Online. The music that you hear on this podcast is called Lonesome Luke, composed by Mark Kirschenmann, who you also hear on trumpet, and played also by Katri Irvama on cello and Michael Gould on percussion, all members of the RC Music Program faculty. If you've enjoyed this program and would like to get in touch with me, Robbie Griswold, about the podcast or for any other reason, really, you can email me at robbyg, R-O-B-B-Y-G, at umich.edu, or give me a call at Esquad at 734-647-9960. This podcast is a production of the Residential College, a four-year interdisciplinary liberal arts program at the University of Michigan College of Literature, Science, and the Arts in Ann Arbor, founded 1967.